And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Welcome. We are live from the bunker. Jason Hyde here. It was kind of a quiet weekend. Sort of. Spent a lot of time updating some different videos and putting uh, putting links in. So when you watch our videos, you can get prompted to watch other ones. I've, I've been very bad about that. But we have survived Labor Day. We are at 108 days without an incident, and I made chocolate pie, which um, didn't set well. So it's it's runny chocolate pie, but it's still chocolate. So anyway, all right. So that mission accomplished. A uh, real quick follow up on uh, the interview we did with Mitch Breitweiser. He was on a stream this morning talking about uh, updates to his project with Red Rooster. Uh, they are getting close to fulfillment on the project. He was talking about they've got uh, they've got some different items uh, for fulfillment that are ordered and in. He's finishing up pages and he's hoping to start shipping, printing, shipping fairly soon. Uh, apparently August was uh, full of some professional and personal challenges. So there is that. Uh, anyway, yes, uh, Sci-Fi Snob in the chat. I am feeling better. I did get over the COVID. <laughs> I actually did not have it. Uh, it's just my my days have been such that I have uh, that I've I've just completely ran out of steam, so I had to I had to take a little bit of a break. Today we have on the program as our guest, Mr. R.J. Carter, who is the editor at Critical Blast, which is sort of a hybrid website publisher news site. Where, where how would you describe the site as you see it? Ah. Uh. Gosh, well, the site is the hub of everything we do. It is intended to be a news and review and interview site for all things pop culture with a decidedly geek skewing. But uh, since, since the base is entertainment related, it has a lot of latitude. So while we'll do a lot of science fiction reviews, a lot of movie reviews, uh, superhero reviews, Last thing we got up there is the uh, review of a, of a wood-based stylus for audiophiles who have vinyl turntables. <laughs> now that would be uh, that would be this uh, the best cartridge you'll ever hear. The the Kari, what is that? That's that's the phonograph needle there. Yes, that is rather esoteric. It's rather esoteric, <laughs> but you know what we found out is that um, the more esoteric something is, the better the traffic is on it. Yep. Uh, like we'll, we'd, we would do a review on, on a Harry Potter film, which you would think millions of people are going to want to know about this thing. And we would get very little traffic because everybody knows that millions of people want to know about this thing. Right. And therefore, you're competing with the New York Times, Time Magazine, uh, Entertainment Weekly. But when you get something that's niche like this, that's got 
10,000 to 20,000 fans and nobody's talking about it, then they'll all come to one spot to see about it. You know, it's funny you mentioned Harry Potter because I got an email here not too long ago from from uh, some quiz, game quiz site that wanted to place an ad on uh, on one of our articles related to Harry Potter. It's a it's a quiz, you know, find your you know which house you belong to type thing, right? And they want to place it very specifically in this one article from 2011. I thought, are you sure? It's from 2011. That's nine years old, and not too many people are looking at that. But they want to put an article. They want to put a link in there. I was like, well. Okay, it's your money to throw away, but it has me wondering how how far and and you've got some experience with this as well, and and I don't know what this what plays out this way in terms of analytics, but it would seem like uh, these things kind of go in cycles where somebody's interested in something for a while and then it kind of fades away, and then I, every now and again I'll see one of our really old articles pop up in a search. Something gets referenced, something gets linked. In your experience with the stuff that you guys have been posting, have you seen any kind of a, a of a shelf life, or does it does it cycle through for you guys as well? There, there's some stuff that uh, is evergreen. Uh, usually, an interview with somebody because every time that person does something newsworthy, uh, the Google engines will fire back up and people will start looking around and they'll find these older articles. Uh, you know, more sadly, when somebody passes away, they'll start looking for older quotes that these people have said to put into obituaries and stuff. Right. Uh, but as far as, you know, banned things like Harry Potter, yeah, that's, that's sort of cyclical. Um, again, it requires for us that somebody who was in the films did something uh, that made the news and it gets Harry Potter trending again. It's, uh, it's one of those things where I'm like, why, why, who's, who's looking at us? You know who would be who would be going back that far, but you know it's it's Harry Potter. There there are Potterheads that are looking for that kind of stuff all the time. So it's kind of funny you mentioned uh, getting a, a, a mention. Uh, the Arkansas Times. We're talking about Mitch Breitweiser. The Arkansas Times just ran an article on them and Allegiance Arts and all of this stuff that they've been doing. And down at the bottom of the article, uh, they quote. Uh, Mitch's interview with us and uh, they mentioned the name of the show but they don't mention the channel that it's on I'm like well half a loaf so half a loaf. somebody will google it they'll find you yeah so uh, so what are you guys working on right now so the hub is the articles and the articles are you know news items and commentary sure but you wear a lot of hats as editor there you're also a contributor you also well, I have no hair so you know I've got to wear you know, something Although although the goatee has come in uh, rather nicely there, it's it's it, I I don't think I've ever seen it that full before. Yeah, it's so. uh, or the uh, the toilet scrub brush as my son is that, refers to is it. That what it is? Yeah, he says we can just shove Dad's head down the toilet now. We don't have to get the stick out. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of a calmed down period now for the site uh, because the 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 site. Came out. I, I used to work for another site called The Trades. It was the-trades.com, and they'd been around for a long time. We, I did 15 years with them as sort of a social media coordinator kind of person. I'd be the guy who was, when I came on, it was people doing movie reviews, and I was like, well, how do you get the tickets? And they're like, well, you buy them. I'm like, well, that doesn't sound right. 
Uh, I'm sure that, you know, the newspapers aren't doing that. Right. So I was the guy who started making phone calls to say, hey, how do we get a movie pass? How do we get a DVD to review or a book? Uh, so I bought the first two Harry Potter books and I never bought another Harry Potter book since uh, because they all started coming as review copies from that point. Uh, that was what I had contributed to the site there. And it was, um, it was good because it was a non-paying position. Uh, so we sort of got st sort of started getting paid in merch and perks. Yeah. Uh, people were able to get DVDs to review and books and such and music. Uh, and then after a while, the guy who ran it said, you know what, it's really not even paying for itself anymore. It was, uh, it was really at its heyday when Survivor and Big Brother uh, was pulling in a lot of traffic. Right. Uh, I, would, I was doing recaps on the uh, Paris Hilton, Nicole Richie show, uh, which would get like 20,000 hits per day uh, whenever we put one of those things up. And it just really dwindled off reality television, kind of, it's still here, but it sort of collapsed in its popularity online. Uh, and the guy said, yes, it's not even paying to keep the site up anymore. I'm going to take it down. And, and he you know, kept the name because he had branding, I guess, with it. Uh, so I said, well, you know what? I've learned a lot. I'm going to come up with my own site and just keep doing the same thing. Uh, went across all the social media channels uh, to find out what was available out of the names we'd come up with because uh, I'd worked with a couple of friends on brainstorming this. Critical Blast was available 99% of the way across. Uh, Google, it wasn't. So I just said, well, that's just the Gmail access to our email accounts anyway. Who cares? So I, I locked it all down. Uh, since then, you know, we've started using the Critical Blast branding for other things. We've gotten into a lot more of the YouTube streaming, uh, taking advantage of that as a platform for interviewing. Uh, now that we've got, you know, live streaming is easier with, with uh, all the different software that's out there that's web-driven. Everybody else can use it, uh, which I love because it's no longer a matter of transcribing an interview from an audio tape that's two hours long or, or two hours of transcription. Uh, that, that's what I found out is that a 15 minute interview is two hours of me pausing and typing and pausing and typing. Uh, that's now when I'm you, just like, that's when you get interns there. Yeah. Well, I am the intern. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so now it's just like, Hey, here's an introductory paragraph of what this person does. And we had a chance to sit down and talk with him. Here's the video. <laughs> we'll just embed it into the website, yeah. uh, which has, you know, the, the double edged um, uh, advantage of being able to get both a YouTube hit and a website hit at the same time if they're watching it while it's embedded into the article. Oh, sure. Uh, and putting it into the article has the advantage of having the headline picked up by Google News, which is something that doesn't necessarily happen with your channel interviews. Uh, so you get you kind of cross the streams there and take advantage of every search engine that's going on. Uh, and then after a while, uh, I, had, I had been writing books uh, as RJ Carter for other people. I said, I'm learning how my publisher, my editor worked with things. I bet I could do something with that. And I, I, we branched out into the Critical Blast Publishing uh, imprint. Um, and that's been an adventure in and of itself as well. So, okay, so let me, let me backtrack a little bit because you mentioned writing. Um, let me throw this up because this is the Amazon page for, for your stuff. And among the different titles here are some different uh, different stories in the Destroyer series, which uh, some might or might not recognize as the Remo Williams books. And 
you're you're not i'm 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 pretty sure you're not the first one to write these books because this is a, oh absolutely not a long-running series and of course you had the movie uh that came out that should have gone farther than it did uh so how did you get involved in writing remo williams stories well the remo williams first book came out in 1971 so i would have been about four years old then uh warren murphy and uh, richard sapir created this character uh, in the late 60s. And then it was like four years of shopping it around before it got picked up and published. And then it was, you know, start cranking them out. Um, my first novel in that is 151 in the series. So it has been running for some time. Uh, and that was Bully Pulpit. Uh, how I got involved with it was, again, because I was doing the website. Now this was, I was still back at the trades uh, before they'd closed down and I was doing book reviews and everybody who knew me knew I was doing book reviews. Mm -hmm. A friend came up and said, Hey, the new destroyer is going to be coming out uh, at Tor. Are you going to be reviewing it? I didn't know what the destroyer was, even though I had seen the Remo Williams movie, I didn't know that there was this uh, franchise behind the whole thing. It was the eighties when I saw it, I was still, you know, in high school. Uh, so he introduced me to it. I picked up the, uh, the tour, the tour four as they're referred to, uh, because it was first time tour picked them up and they only did four books with, uh, Warren Murphy and, uh, Richard Mullaney, uh, Jim Mullaney. I'm sorry. I know two Mullaney's and I get them mixed up. Uh, Jim Mullaney was, uh, writing with that one and I loved them. They were, um, they were satirical as much as they were action. There was some, uh, poking fun at people that you knew who they were talking about, even though they worked their way around it. Right. And it wasn't long after that, that I saw that they put out a call for uh, a fan anthology. And this was apparently their second one. They'd done one years ago. And so it was a kind of a surprise that they were going to do a second one. I said, I can do this. And that was the, uh, the more blood book that they did. And this was, um, what I did for that was a, a story called uh, fool's paradise. Cause I saw all these parallels in the destroyer universe and the characters that populated it uh, with another set of characters in another universe that I really enjoyed reading for decades. And I said, I wonder what would happen if these two universes were to collide. So I did a very detrademarked uh, story of Reno and Chun uh, investigating a murder plot in a Gothic section of New York that was protected <laughs> by a vigilante who dressed as Dracula. So I had, you know, the commissioner and the signal and the car. Uh, so yes, it was Remo Williams meets Batman. I'm like, okay, this is fun to write. I'll just send it out there and see what they do. Sure. And they, they bought it. Uh, and by being, by buying it, I mean, you know, they gave me a copy of the book. They called me up and said, Hey, you know, well, they, they emailed me and said, we like the story. Um, we think you've got a good handle on the voice for the characters here. I'm like, Oh, thanks. I get a copy of the book. Right. And they said, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and Devin Murphy, who's the publisher now, uh, and was the publisher then, uh, said, we, we'd like you to, uh, would, would you consider taking over the books? Which was absolutely the furthest thing from my mind when I wrote the story. But I was like, um, you're talking about the guy who had a movie, right? <laughs> you want me to write this, these books? Uh, and even then, there was the rumor that's, that's still out there, a little more substantiated now, that there was a new Destroyer movie in the works with uh, Shane Black attached to direct it. Right, I remember uh, hearing about that. I was like, so you want me to be the author on a series of books that I might still be writing uh, when a movie comes out and gainer, garners national attention. 
Um, yeah, okay, I'll see what I, you know, try to fit <laughs> in my schedule. Uh, and, you know, that's that's where we where we went from there. And you've done three so far, is that right? I have done three. Uh, I did Bully Pulpit, which finally gave me an outlet for a novel plot idea that I've been sitting on for 20 years. Uh, <laughs> and said, oh, finally, I can do this. I'll just change it into a destroyer story. Uh, Bully Pulpit was sort of the realization of my philosophy that no villain ever sees himself as the villain. Uh, every villain thinks that they're the hero in their own story. Right. Therefore, what if you had a, a, a villain who was not just thinking he was doing good, but was almost the ultimate in good? So I had a televangelist who was above reproach. Uh, he, he, he didn't cheat on his taxes. He didn't fleece his flock. Uh, and in an era where a lot of the other ones were, this attracted attention to him and people started giving him more money. And he got very, very wealthy because he was above board with everything. And he's a true believer. He, uh, he feels very badly for people who lose faith and fall away from it. And as such, he would really like God to hurry up and finish his business and come back and take everybody home. He stumbles across this uh, theory of Nikola Tesla's, and that's the plot that I've been sitting on. Uh, Tesla, in, back in the early 1900s, had discovered telegeodynamics. Uh, you know, he'd hooked a two and a half, hour, two and a half horsepower motor up to a, a steel I-beam mounted in concrete and was shattering windows down the street without knowing it because of the vibrational frequencies. He, uh, he then went on to expound that you know, everything has a vibrational rate. Uh, the earth has a periodicity of one hour and 49 minutes, which is to say if you strike at the earth uh, hard enough, in an hour and 49 minutes, it will go to the center and come back up to the surface. And that if you were to do this with like a thousand pounds of dynamite every hour and 49 minutes, over a two month period, the earth would be in such a state of earthquakes that nothing could stop it and it would crack in half like an apple. Well, he caused a national panic at the time that he had to quell by saying, but nobody knows the, when the peaks and ebbs of the earth's vibrational rate are. So therefore no one would ever be able to actually hit this straight on and don't worry about it. It's impossible to pull off. Right. In the early 1900s, um, my thoughts were, you know, geological surveys today, computer models, somebody could figure that out if they wanted to. And this guy invests all his money into oil, strip mining, construction, uh, things where he can not only measure that, but also pull off explosions at timed intervals uh, that would start the process off. And, and thus he's like, I will force God's hand to come back and save everybody before they have a chance to fall away on their own. And I'm going to go to hell for it, but that's okay. Interesting. That's that's a that's that's a unique take on the the televangelist type of of character trope, um, mixed in a little bit with uh, Lex Luthor's West Coast plan, kind of. Yes. <laughs> so uh, so. Y- how much of the of the process do you have a lot of leeway in terms of the kinds of stories, or do they have to fit a particular mode, a particular mold model that this is your your usual Remo Williams story, or do you have well, a lot of flexibility with that? I've never really been told that a plot was 
you know, undoable. That said, there is a formula uh, and there is like a sort of a size to it. And usually a little over 20 chapters. Uh-huh. Uh, you always open up with the first chapter. Somebody, an innocent man will die. An innocent person will die. And this person usually knows something uh, and is killed by the people who he knows about. And it's like, and, and, and now, and you end the chapter with like, and now, you know, nobody would ever realize uh, who, who would be there to rescue us all when the government tries to turn our brains into cheese through x-ray experimentation. And then you turn the chapter and chapter two always begins with the answer to that question. His name was Remo. And, and then you would find something he was doing at the time. So right. uh, this, this sort of began with like the third book in the series. It skipped a little bit. And then it became just consistently every chapter two was his name was Remo and. Gotcha. So having done it, done three of them now, uh, do you find that it's easier to, to tell these stories or is every, every Remo Williams book just as challenging as the, as the first one you did? Uh, They're all just as challenging for different reasons. Uh, One of the reasons is that one of the, tenets of the book was that you satirize things that are going on in the news. Uh, you know, Murphy and Sapir would satirize pop culture. They would satirize politics. Uh, anything that was going on was, was ripe for poking at. And the news that I see today is so over the top and so ridiculous uh, and, and, and defies my belief so much that like, how do you make fun of this? How do you, how do you take people going out and shouting at the sky in frustration and take that up a notch to make fun of it when it's already something that appears ridiculous on its face. Now, is that, is that something you've, you know, we could get into, to the politics of things, but the, the way the media cycle is where everything just kind of churns, you know, you've got that 24 hours, you know, what's the next headline? We're not going to, we're not going to do a whole lot of fact checking or vetting. We're just going to we're just going to lay this out there, and then the next thing comes along, we lay this out there. And essentially, what you're doing, you're you're laying waste to uh, the culture at some point. It feels like, at least in some sense. But how do you how do you uh, select? I guess what pieces you're going to use and whatnot. Because I was talking to Declan Finn here not too long ago uh, on this show, and he said that originally when he was writing some of his St. Tommy stories, his approach was the same kind of thing as far as, you know, going over the top and speculating on how things would go. And he said, I never intended for my books to be predictive, but here we are. And, you know, it's that where, how do you dial it up to 11 when the amp is already at 10 and a half? You know, it's, it's where, so are your, are you having to lean further into the crazy and really go like Babylon B level over the top? I mean, we're at the point now where it's, is this MSNBC or is this the onion? You know, it, it, that, that, question keeps getting asked well in the destroyer universe it's msmbs that's the uh, station that i put in there okay. um, and, and usually it's fox charger behind the microphone on that kind of a thing um, gotcha. yeah it's uh sometimes i just have to 
play it straight and just change the names. Uh, I'll, I'll play with the dialect of the people who are talking uh, and just kind of you know, amp up the things I can, uh, the little things, because the, the main thing is still um, ridiculous. I mean, when you're dealing with uh, groups of people who are protesting about whether or not to leave a Confederate monument up or tear it down, uh, and, and just getting in these gang fights with each other over the whole thing, uh, that, that's already something that's like, we're, really, we're, we're, we're fighting about this? So I have to pick the individuals out of it and amp up their characteristics and make them more ridiculous. Gotcha. Now, uh, uh, in the chat, Sci-Fi Snob was talking about your, you know, that whole plot with the, the end of the world type of things. It sounds like a good idea to pass on to, to Doomcock, who's for those of you who are not familiar, Doomcock is a is a up and coming YouTuber who uh, focuses a lot on Star Trek and Star Wars rumors and. I wanted. I want to ask you then, given your own time that you're spending on YouTube, and I'm sure that you're, you know, observing and connecting with some of these. Has social media started to factor into some of these stories yet? Are you are you bringing in characters that are, you know, Alex Jones type, for example, or or a, a Milo or you know, Jordan Peterson or, you know, any, any of these folks? Uh, yeah. Um, in fact, in Continental Divide, I had an InfoWars uh, parody going on with that as far as the news coverage of, of all the bridges that were being destroyed in that. Uh, but I've been told by my publisher that uh, if, if I'm blocked for ideas, he, th he wants me to do something with Mark Zuckerberg. He thinks Mark Zuckerberg is just ripe for... Uh, <laughs> right for the picking in here. And, and I told him that, yeah, I, I will do that. I've definitely got a plan for it, but uh, I can't write a Mark Zuckerberg uh, satire piece without it being called friend request. Ah. And, and the reason that's important in the destroyer universe is that a, there is a villain called friend who is an AI who exists for nothing more than generating profit. Uh, and I'd already done a technological piece with Mr. Gordon's in Continental Divide. So I said, friend is coming, but he'll come too soon if I bring him in now. Yeah. So there, there's the question of dating yourself. You know, you mentioned Zuckerberg. Uh, I've been doing that since you, high school. Oh, <laughs> different, different, different. But yeah. you, you mentioned Zuckerberg, you mentioned InfoWars. And uh, there's one there's one complaint that I've seen about you know some of the reboots of these different franchises that they're digging too hard into the 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 culture of the day the the stuff that's going on now as opposed to trying to tell these stories that would essentially be timeless enough that they're going to last. 5, 10, 15, 20 years, especially given the fact that most of these franchises are now 30, 40, 50 years old. And you have that phrase, a product of its time, where something like Star Wars, for example, it is a product of its time, but it transcends that and becomes something else. And it becomes something else for each generation that that is introduced to it. How do you keep... For, for your own process, how do you keep your stories 
from get from from seeming dated two years from now, five years from now, ten years from now? Is that something that you anticipate yeah. and built into it, or do you not worry about it? Well, I try not to worry about it. At the same time, I build it in uh, because you know. For those who don't know who Remo Williams is, he was a, a beat cop from, New, from Newark, New Jersey, who was framed for the uh, killing of a drug dealer uh, and summarily executed. I mean, like within a boom, boom, boom period, it was just uh, ridiculous how quickly it went. Well, the reason for that was, was that he was a loner and uh, he was being recruited to be an assassin for Cure, which is this agency that was set up by a young president uh, who saw that the constitution could not defend itself by operating within its own rules and it needed somebody outside the rules to, to defend it. Uh, and that was what Cure was established to do. So Cure faked this um, execution, didn't tell Remo it was being faked. Uh, and Remo wakes up later in a, in a lab somewhere and they're like, you know, uh, you're being recruited to do this. And by the way, if you don't want the job, we already have a headstone. Uh, so <laughs> all we have to do is finish putting you under it. Uh, you're a man that doesn't exist now. Uh, you've been erased from the system. And, you know, of course he was picked because he was patriotic. He takes the job. Uh, but because of that, you know, the cure only reports to the president. It's only two people. It's, you know, Harold Smith and Remo Williams. That's, it's an agency of two. Right. But because the president is active in the stories so much, uh, you can always tell who is president by the way they speak or the things they will talk about or the people they might reference. Uh, you know, if, if the vice president, if somebody's impersonating the vice president and he goes into the jungle where the president's plane has crashed and the president says, Dan, is that you? Well, now you know that you're talking about the George Bush, Dan Quayle era. Uh, so there are people who will look at that and they'll say, well, of course, you know, Kennedy is the uh, nice young president who got, who later was shot, who set up cure. Right. Therefore, Remo began in this year and now he is, he's, he fought in this war and he is now this old. And my approach is that all of this happened and yet he's only been doing it for 10 years. Uh, so, sort of like, you know, Batman used to be in the comics to go back to that. It's like Batman's been operating for five years uh, and he's always 29 years old. That's yeah. how Barbara uh, Zach has defined him as 29. I'm sure he's like 40 now, I guess, in current continuity since DC started the clock ticking uh, as soon as Robin became Nightwing. Uh, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> well, now it does, it does bring to mind uh, some of the issues that uh, people have complained about in the comics industry where you have somebody like a Tony Stark, a Captain America, you know, Superman, Batman, all of these characters that started in the 30s and 40s, and their origins have to be continuously updated because, you know, for some, Korea was a thing. For some, it was Vietnam. For some, it's the Iraq War. And your, your uh, real-life historical references end up changing over time because... You know, if you're going to be bringing in new readers and and new audience for that character, they still have to be relevant. And of course, if you're getting all these young readers, there's there's nothing that happened in the world before they were born. So of course, you've got to update all of these things. Is right. 
have you run into any kind of a challenge with that or are you staying generic enough or, or, or is it easier, easier for you? We just focus on Remo and the presidential stuff is just kind of incidental. The real, the real world stuff just happens to be window dressing is just there. Well, yeah, the real world stuff is definitely window dressing. Uh, I try to stay away from specific time anchored points. Like Smith is Smith was OSS in World War II and Remo was uh, in Vietnam in the Air Force. I don't reference those wars uh, and I don't reference them, certainly not specifically because I don't want to you know, give the reader this cognitive dissonance that these are old people now that I'm dealing sure. with. I want to keep them fresh. Uh, at the same time, you know, with, uh, with Continental Divide, that's happening. Uh, I, I called it Continental Divide for two reasons. One was that there was a plot to destroy all the bridges along the Mississippi River so that the CEO facing bankruptcy could see a surge in profits by having air freight increase because ground travel would be useless from one side of the country to the other. Uh, but I also said it during the presidential debates for the upcoming election. And I had the billionaire CEO, uh, uh, Randall Rump, uh, running on one side and the former secretary of the, you know, former secretary running, uh, Madam Secretary running on the other side, who I couldn't name because tradition was we never name, never named the president and therefore never named the first ladies. Right. Uh, I had to go with Randall Rump because, um, or, or Kendall, Kendall Rump, because Randall Rump had already been satirized in a book several uh, books back as Donald Trump and they killed him in it. So I was like, you, you killed the guy who later became the president. <laughs> I can't use that anymore. I have to come up with somebody else. So he had a brother. Gotcha. Now that's you know, as as satirical as that name is. Uh, it sounds like these these stories have have tongue very firmly planted in cheek. Um, oh yeah. Is is there a danger? Because there are a lot of people that don't that don't they don't know Remo Williams except through the movies. And like you said, Shane Black, there's rumor that there's another one coming at some point. Why do you think the movie didn't take off? I don't really know why the movie didn't take off. I think, you know, even then the fan base for it was fairly limited. I don't think there was this widespread uh, knowledge of who the character was. Um, you know, the book had been book series been going on for 15 years and it was seriously aimed at the men's adventure market. Uh, and it probably didn't quite go far enough. I mean, the, the Remo Williams books are very, very violent when it comes to the application of, of Sinanju, uh, the sun source of all martial arts. These people go down hard. Yeah. Um, and the, the 85 movie uh, was so PG that it could have been a movie for television. Uh, there, there, there was, you know, the closest thing that came straight out of the book was when he's ordered to shoot Master Chun and, and try to kill him. Uh, and Chun's dodging all these bullets and takes the gun away from him. But after that, you know, Remo's never really used as an assassin in Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins. He's just used to, you know, stop this plot from taking over and, and having other people get killed. Remo's very, um, very much a scalpel at times. It's like, get in, kill the guy, get out. And make it, you know, look like an accident. 
because the best assassinations are the ones that are not detected as assassinations. So uh, our, a new Remo Williams movie that adheres a little bit more faithfully to the source would probably be an R-rated, maybe maybe a Death Wish type of of story. A Death Wish type. Uh, if we're talking Shane Black, I would say more like the Nice Guys. Okay. Okay. Um, now, has anybody talked to you about story? on any of that or oh, is that no just... no no I, I will not be doing the story on that i know the person who's done the screenplay on it and it's already turned in uh so that's you know i won't have anything to do with that have you read it i just it? have to be lucky enough to be writing the books uh for the moment gotcha have you read the screenplay no no i haven't i'm, I'm assuming it will be a, a remake of the day remo died which would be uh you know the first book was uh, you know created the destroyer and the day remo died is a retelling of that by jim mulaney uh, that was uh, put into one of the other later books okay. uh, that kind of fleshed out things a bit. So where does the, and I'm, I'm revealing my, my ignorance on this. Why call it the destroyer? Is that because of his assassin role or is there a story there? There is a huge story there. Uh, the folder uh, for Remo's uh, recruitment. And, you know, when, when Smith decided that they needed somebody uh I mean, for, for a long time, Cure operated as just a, a guy with a computer and checking records and tying, you know, mob bosses and uh, bad union deals and corrupt police together and then tying it up all in a nice bow and sending it off to the proper legal authorities and letting them say, oh, we've got a present. Let's go, you know, arrest these people that we've now been given proof to. Uh, at some point, Smith said, yeah, we need more than that. Uh, we need somebody who can actually uh, get their hands dirty and wet and take things out. That project was a project destroyer. Uh, and when, when they go and get Master Chun from the uh, North Korean village of Sinanju, uh, who's the only master of the martial art of the same name, to come and train Remo, uh, he's against it. You know, why would I teach Sinanju to a white man? Uh, mm. Master Chun is, is very racist, but he's an equal opportunity racist. He even hates Koreans. So. Uh, most of them deserve it, he says. But then he learns that Remo was killed, executed. Uh, and then he uh, hears that it's destroyer. He just, in passing. And he says, well, maybe I'll stick around for a little while. He says this because there's an ancient prophecy in Sinanju uh, that Shiva, the destroyer, would select one of the line of Sinanju to enact some sort of prophecy further down the line here. Uh, so that's that's where that comes in. And in fact, Shiva, the god of whatever Shiva is the god of, uh, does play a large role in the entire mythos. Uh, it makes appearances now and then. There have been many scenes throughout the series where Remo is killed uh, in, in, the, in fighting. And when that happens, uh, he gets back up. <laughs> and his eyes have gone inky black and his voice is coming from all directions. And he he utters the, uh, I am created Shiva, the destroyer, uh, who is this dog meat that stands before me. And that's when things get really serious. And then he passes out and he gets back up and devastation has occurred. And he's like, what happened? <laughs> that sounds, uh, so the supernatural element uh, definitely takes it into the the genre wheelhouse. Um, is that... <sighs> Does that 
in your mind, now that you've done three of them, does that make it harder to tell a story that are, are we, you talk about, you know, Remo meeting Batman and a lot of the new Batman stories have tried to ground in reality a little bit more and be a little bit more realistic. But if you have, you know, you have your hero pretty much essentially a golem for an Egyptian god. It sounds like it sounds like you're able to go a little over the top with the action and and the story as well. Yeah, I mean that's the thing about the destroyers that is it has had compassed so many different genres that it's all all there. Uh, you'll go with something like Bully Pulpit, which is pretty much a, a terrorist plot on a large scale. Mm -hmm. uh, you always try to take them over the top, but he's done uh, adventures where it's literally been like, you know, a mafia hit or a mugger blood where it's all been, you know, people trying to control other people uh, and maybe elevate a mayor to a governor or a governor to a president uh, and just killing all the wrong people and putting the country in peril. And then you'll have adventures where he's up against um, an escaped uh, robot from NASA that's been programmed for survival only, and that would be Mr. Gordon's. Uh, Mr. Gordon's was a NASA project. He was going to be shot into space. He was programmed specifically for survival uh, so that he could recognize incoming threats and adjust accordingly to them so that he could continue probing out into space. Well, he's sitting on a table as a box, and the doctor who uh, is working on it has found out that the budget's been cut, and she says, we're not going to have any money to finish this funding. We're not going to survive which triggers Gordon's into saying, oh, money, survival. And he's at first Mr. Gordon's appearance is him counterfeiting money uh, and then re recognizing that when Remo and Chun come after him, they threaten my survival. I must now find a way to eliminate them. And he keeps coming back. He's one of the few recurring uh, villains in the, in the book series because let's face it, if uh, Remo had a rogues gallery as an assassin, he wouldn't really be good at his job. Right. So are the AI and you know, the implications of that, are we going to see some kind of a Skynet type of thing eventually show up in these books? I have, I have the, uh, the plot threads laid down. Uh, I've, I've managed to use Mr. Gordon's myself once for Continental Divide here. Mr. Gordon's is a fabricating machine, so he can change his appearance. Uh, he can become other things. He can become a chair or a printing press or anything else but his human form is always this bland expression, uh, blonde man uh, modeled after the father of his creator. And I had always wondered, uh, you know, why this autonomous artificial intelligence, which, you know, if any part of it still exists after being defeated, it can grow back from that. And that's always what's happened. You know, there's been a chip that's been overlooked or something and it just grows back. Uh, why it never teamed up with this other AI that existed in the Destroyer universe, which was Friend, which existed only in a computer uh, and went through financial networks. So what would happen if they ever got together? Uh, and that's why at the end of Continental Divide, when Mr. Gordons gets away again, uh, he finds out who had been uh, hiring him to do the dirty work that he'd been doing here. And uh, he meets basically with a computer terminal, a warehouse, and computer terminal is just flashing the messages up there and Gordon's is talking and he's telling him, you know, Hey, you've deduced what you need for survival. You need these three things, uh, which carry over from the older books. You know, Gordon's had deduced the things he had needed for survival. You know, there was money, there was trust. Um, he had had to, 
he needed a friend. And that's the last thing that clicks into place. And Gordon's is like, may I call you friend? And the monitor pops up says, everyone does, which will tell the longtime fans exactly who they're dealing with now. So the next time we see Gordon's, it will be this AI married up to AI. And one of them is not going to want what the other one wants when the plans come out. And that's all I can say about that one. No. Robert in the chat says, AI always tries to destroy all human life. It's practically gospel. Yes, yes, it does. Is, um, AI doesn't want to destroy the human life here. It either wants to survive, uh, in the case of Gordon's, or it wants to amass profit, which is, is the, the programming of friend. Yeah. Now, it will kill you to do that, but it won't kill all of you. We sat and watched uh, The Matrix over the weekend. Uh, which is something I haven't, I, I have not sat and watched it uh, in a very long time. And it reminds me that all of these dystopian futures that we always look at, how many of them are always the AI decided that something is wrong, something needs to be created or, or destroyed or, or changed? And then I turn around and I, you know, I get these emails on how to use AI to spread your business, how to use AI for your marketing, how to use AI for, for, you know, product research and audience research. I'm like, you guys don't watch any of these movies do you? <laughs> because AI, AI is not, I don't, that's not a good thing that we need to be investing in. Have you not seen any of these stories, how they turn out? Uh, it's always it always that that disconnect always strikes me as as interesting because in the real world, AI is seen as a very useful tool. It's a it's a you know something that we can control. It does what we tell it to do, and it's you know this, this handy helper that's around. And yeah. yet we turn around and we tell all of these stories about AIs going completely out of control. Do you, do you remember a, a television series starring Parker Stevenson called Probe? Oh, yeah. I remember that yeah. show. Isaac Asimov had a hand in that one, and one of the episodes was about an AI uh, that uh, a business had developed for itself uh, that was you know, meant to look for ways that money was being lost mm -hmm. in the company. And one of the things that the AI found was that there was this huge amount of money just flowing right out of the company, uh, through the pension program. These people are not producing anything anymore and we're giving them lots of money. Well, if they weren't around, then we could save all this money. So it, it goes around uh, using internet connections. Internet didn't exist at the time, so I don't know how it did it. Uh, but setting up accidents to kill all these elderly retired people from the company so that the company didn't have to make pension payments anymore. Gee. Uh it's it's just one of those things. Now, uh, speaking of speaking of pensions, and and long term retirement and doing this, how how long do you see yourself writing and editing? Is this is this now the full time gig for you? Oh, it's one of my many full time gigs. Uh, I will probably continue doing it until I die. Um, I found I really enjoy editing, um, which is one of one of the reasons why we started doing books with Critical Blast where, you know, I'm not the writer. Uh, we started with uh, this anthology we did two, almost three years ago now, Gods and Services, um, where I'm, I'm inherently lazy. <laughs> so, so I'll come up with like, you know, these 
these big concept ideas and then, you know, get other people to do them. So I had the high concept of this, uh, this the trope of the curiosity shop that pops up and it's never there when you go back to try to find it again. Right. Uh, with, with the sign that would say goods and services and one of the O's fell up, fell down. So it says gods and services by accident. Uh, and it's just full of these tchotchkes and, uh, and, and junk, but it all means something. They all have a God attached to them who's been out of service, so to speak. And when you, you buy the item, the God comes home with you. And now that you have made your sacrifice to it or your offering to it, it has to make your life better or bless you in some way. Uh, I got the idea from an old Tony Randall movie with Burl Ives called The Brass Bottle, where Tony brings home this brass bottle, shines it up, Burl Ives pops out of it, you've rescued me, I must now make your life better, uh, and, and, and then goes on to just make it worse every time he tries to make it better because he's operating with thousands of years old uh, ideas. Sure. Uh, so that was what I gave to the writers. Yeah, and English is not a, a, a great language to learn. Um, I, we had a story on Saturday. Uh, Sci-Fi has an animation block, and they've just ordered to series this thing called the Summoner, which is basically, you know, a genie type of character who has the ability to summon anything to his location. But he doesn't know English that well, and it doesn't go very much as expected or predicted. So that should be uh, interesting absolutely. to watch. So, uh, so editing these books. So you've got um, th your first one out, uh, Bulletproof Origins. We talked to Stephen Mitchell about that last week. Yeah, that's actually that our process. second book. The, that's the second? Okay. Yeah, that's, that's this one here. So how are you finding the material that you decide this is what we're going to publish, and what's that process like as far as getting it up to snuff that you're ready to put it out there in the world? Well, with Stevens, it was more of a pilot project. We were already familiar with each other, uh, and I knew that we were going into publishing. We'd already done Gods and Services. Uh, and he said, well, I've been doing this thing. I'm like, well, run it past me, and I'll give you an honest assessment of it, uh, and we'll see if it's something we can do. Um, I liked the concept. I saw he had three books planned for it, and we you know, edited uh, on my end and gave him lots of feedback on you know, where things were going. He, he's already covered that on your last channel, and I'll let people seek that out and get the information straight from the horse's mouth on that one. Uh, so that was our first novel, novel, first, you know, the big book. Yeah. And if somebody else comes along with a project now, they can, they can submit to us proposals and, you know, we'll look them over. Uh, we're going to be very selective because we're very small right now. We're just getting started up. Uh, and I'm going to continue with the anthology, sort of like every other book will be an anthology. Uh, the last one we did was uh, The Devil You Know. And this was, you know, we got 20 stories in here, 370 pages, uh, all about people's encounters with the devil. And it uh, ranges from, you know, humorous stories to horror stories, sci-fi, past, present, fantasy. Uh, we got a really good mix in here, and I was really happy with that. Uh, in fact, I was so happy with it. And the way the cover turned out with this, this image of the fist on here, I told the cover designers, save that picture because you're going to use it again. Uh, because we're going to do the devil you know better and the devil you know best, having holding up fingers to indicate which volume it is. So, what's your what's your criteria for people to contribute to your anthologies? Are you looking for new talent, uh, established talent, a mix? It, it's a mix. I mean, when we did Gods and Services, uh, I especially I took advantage of my book reviewing 
uh, history to approach some of the people we'd already talked to and people we knew. Uh, so, you know, we got uh, some of the people in here I went directly to would be John Della Rose, uh, who has a story in it. Uh, David J. Peterson, who did the angst series. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, Ira Bloom, who had done a novel for Simon and Schuster. Uh, no, I'm sorry, Scholastic called Hearts and Other Body Parts. Uh, and we had gotten, you know, close in emails and we still follow each other on Twitter uh, for my review on that book. And they all turned in some some great stories and helped us out for, you know, the, the minimal payment we were making was like 20 bucks for the for story and then a copy. So it's typical small press uh, payment for new writers and such. But it gave this book the gravitas it needed. Yeah. Robert in the chat says, I tried to sell my soul to the devil the last time I drove through Georgia. All I got was a coupon to Waffle House. Didn't even get the fiddle. That Didn't sucks. get the fiddle. So how, how much how much of a challenge is it to take a book from the beginning to end? Is that Has it been everything that you expected it to be, or have there been hiccups and challenges? What adjustments have you had to make? Oh, oh plenty of... Um, editing is different than writing uh, yeah. and, and, and the publishing aspect of it, uh, because you have to look for things that, as a writer, you don't look for as much. Uh, I... I find the little things uh, that anger the perfectionist in me. Uh, and, and, it, and it angers me because it's always my fault. It's never something I look at and it's like, oh, the writer made a mistake. Well, we'll correct that. You know, that's, that's fine. But then, you know, I get the book back and I'm like, yes, this looks beautiful. I love the fact that we've accomplished this. Why is the wrong author's name at the top of this story? Uh, and and that's, that's something that literally happened with our first print was uh, the section headers. Uh, got linked to the previous section headers for two of the stories. So it, it got corrected after that. But I'm like, no, this cannot stand because, first of all, these two authors would love to see their own name at the top of their own stories. So I had to correct that, send it in. Uh, of course, there's a correction cost for all of that. And then I've got to send out new copies to those two authors so that they can at least have a pristine copy of their own work. I didn't want them, I didn't want them being shorted like that. Right. One of the things that I've run into when... Uh, trying to set up either reviews or interviews like this one or, you know, various different pieces of coverage that we've done. Uh, The Internet is both a blessing and a curse sometimes because uh, as as Mindy is going through and and adjusting uh, and updating all of the information on conventions, for example... You know, we're going to a lot of different websites and there are a lot of different layouts, a lot of different designs. Some of them are more user friendly than others. And some of the authors and the people that we talk to, it's really hard to find any good, decent photograph, you know, like a publicity photo or a headshot or something like this, especially. Oh, for I the, noticed. Yeah, especially for the newer, the newer, not quite established talent, whether it's an actor or a writer or a producer or something. It's tough uh, because, you know, we want to make sure that we're, you know, giving proper credit and, and, and we have a format that we follow in our, uh, in our articles and such. And I like to put names and faces together as much as I can. So, uh, so yeah, that would be my, my one bugaboo with a lot of people that are just starting out. Put yourself a media kit together as quickly as you can and and have your 
have your photo, have a quick bio, you know, with your bibliography or your portfolio or whatnot. But having having a photograph that people can use in their coverage of what you do, very helpful. I, I'm just yeah, going to throw that one out there for free to anybody who's who's listening or who cares. But. And I'm totally guilty of that one as well. I mean, when your when your Amazon photo is basically you doing a selfie, uh, yeah, which is what mine is. I've been I've been banned from Olin Mills for 20 years because of equipment <laughs> failures. That's when you um, go to Life Touch. Yeah. Right? Are they yeah. still around? I don't know, but I I'm, I'll have to do something, but uh it's going to have to make me better looking than what I am. So what's next in the pipeline for you guys? Are you are you splitting your time between the next book to be published and the stuff that's on the website or are you going leaning into one or the well, other? Yeah, I'm trying to focus. Uh, I need to focus more on the website now because it's, it's like the more I put focus on one thing, the less traffic comes to the website. And I've got to remember that the website is the core of all things here. Uh, but I'm also working on the, the next Destroyer book. Um, I'm putting the summary together for that one right now. There, there are two manuscripts that have been turned in. We're going to push them back a little bit uh, to get something else squeezed in between them, which, which is fine. Uh, I already had ideas for... Uh, stories around things like Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. Uh, there goes your, uh, your, your YouTube uh, counter, by the way. <laughs> I to give you fair warning on that one. No, um, I, I, I have gotten to the point where I've, I've decided not to even worry about it because it's not, <laughs> it's not worth it. It's not worth the headache. I tell you. Uh, we're, we're getting ready to put bulletproof origins into paperback. Um, which we plan to do around this time anyway, because we thought that the second book in the series would be out by now uh, with the COVID restrictions and displacements uh, that, you know, Stephen had to go through. Uh, he wasn't able to focus as much on the writing right yeah. now. Uh, he's still working on it, but uh, survival <laughs> was, was first and foremost. Um, so we're waiting on that. Um, I want to get that out of the way, the second bulletproof book before I go into the devil, you know, better. And gosh, after, after that, it's just, you know, we're, we're, we're finding a lot of, uh, having a lot of fun and finding a lot of luck doing the YouTube channel interviews that we do with creators uh, who are putting out new projects. Uh, we're starting to get some attention that way. You know, actually having people finding us in other media saying, hey, I'm starting to see a lot of you all over the place. Who are you? Where'd you come from? I'm like, well, we're, we're a five-year-old success. We're a five-year-old overnight success story. Uh, <laughs> I know that feeling. My, we're we're uh, how, let's see, 2009. So now we're 11. We're go, we're going on 12 next March. Uh, so we're still we're still waiting for that overnight uh, success thing to kick in. But it does look like you've been uh, more active, um, and it seems like there's there's kind of this coalescence of a number of different channels that are finding each other through various commonalities, whether you're all complaining about the same thing, you're all covering the same news, you're all comment, commenting on uh, things that are going on in pop culture and Star Wars and Star Trek and Doctor Who and whatnot. Sure. Do you and, and a lot of it is uh, we'll, we'll interconnect with each other and provide our own perspective on it or offer things that, you know, we can offer that the other one couldn't. Right. Um, Case in point, you know, I, I talked with Chris Braley over at uh, Bleeding Fool, which is a comic book pop culture website, sort of like we are, we're pop culture. Uh, and they had done their whole Whisper Network story. 
Uh, and they came out with the story about uh, Bill Willingham's accusations against Stephanie Cook right. uh, for the embezzlement charges that he was levying against her. And that got met with a lot of, yeah, but where's your proof? You know, this is just a rumor you're, mess, you're, you're throwing innuendo out there. Well, what we could do uh, that, that they didn't do was, you know, we got in touch with the sheriff's department. We ran an FOIA. We were a, we're a news site. We get picked up by Google News. Uh, so we had, you know, I, I, you know, they look at us and they say, yes, you do do straight reporting on things, even though you also have a lot of editorial content. Uh, and we got the paperwork that was filed with the Dodge County Sheriff's Office and reproduced that. So that, you know, corroborated the Bleeding Fool article with you know, some more straight news reporting of, uh, of the events. So we, you know, back each other up strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. Now, how, how long do you think outrage clickbait videos are going to last. I mean, you guys, you guys don't do that, but a lot of these, a lot of these sites are, you know, they're, they're building their audiences and they're making their bones on, you know, everything that's wrong with fill in the blank. It doesn't seem to me like that's sustainable very much. I, I don't think it is either because you have to find something else to get outraged about when that particular flame dies out. And I just don't have the energy for it uh, to do it as a sort of a means to rely on my, my traffic that way. Right. Uh, I will have opinions on things and I'll write articles now and then that will be incendiary. Uh, I've lost staff before because I put my opinion out on something and they were like, well, if this is the opinion of the site, I'm like, no, 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 no. The site has no opinion. I had an opinion, you have an opinion, your opinion's very impassioned and very well written. Put it up as a piece, please, and rebut. And they're like, no, I'd rather just quit. Like, yep, I've had that happen. I've had that happen a couple of different times. So, yep. I, I feel your pain, sir. Yeah, but, but to constantly be outraged about something every single day, uh, I, I can't do it. I'd much rather just sit down and say, and today we're going to be talking with this person about this comic about which I've done no research at all. That way I can learn everything fresh as I'm asking the questions. If I know the answers, it's harder to ask the questions. Well, I appreciate you letting me ask you some questions today. We've gotten to our end of our hour, so I'm going to go ahead and let you get back to your, uh, your regular day throughout, you know, all of the stuff that you guys have got doing right now. And, uh, We'll definitely have you back on to talk more about the next book and the next project and the next thing for uh, for you guys over there at Critical Blast, the site, criticalblast.com. And uh, I want to thank R.J. Carter for being here today. Thanks, sir. Thank you for having me on, Jason. I appreciate it. All right. And for those of you who are watching live, you're in the live chat, Robert and Sci-Fi Snob, thanks very much for your comments today. If you are watching in replay or if you're listening to this as the podcast uh, version, uh, we do invite you to check out the show. It airs live on our YouTube channel, SciFiForMe.tv, Monday through Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern, noon Central. And uh, you can always leave us a comment and uh, share your thoughts on any of the conversations that we have here. You can also send us an email, 
live from the bunker at scififorme.com. Send us some feedback that way. If you have someone that you'd like to suggest, we invite to be a guest on the show. We are certainly open to that as well. We've already uh, had that happen a couple of different times. In the meantime, we do uh, invite you to check out superherostuff.com. We've got a promo code over there. You can save 10% when you type in sci-fi for me 10 when you check out. And uh, we've also got a subscribe star account uh, where you can support us financially, should you be so inclined. And we are getting back to our regular schedule this week. Tonight at uh, 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, we'll have a brand new Salacious Crumbs with the latest Star Wars news. And uh, we'll, it looks like, uh, looks like Mindy is working on a convention schedule update as well, so we'll have one of those. And then, of course, the regular the regular broadcast schedule continues. Tomorrow here, uh, we will be talking to Mark Walters. He was one of the founders of the Dallas Comic-Con way back in the day before Fan Expo uh, came in and, and bought it. So we'll be talking to him about the convention scene, uh, how his how his conventions came about and what he sees in the future for those events. And uh, then on Thursday, don't have anything lined up yet. Might be a surprise. So in the meantime, uh, we do invite you to subscribe. If you have not already, make sure your notifications are turned on. And uh, check out uh, some of the rest of the videos that we've got here. Give us a thumbs up on your way out. Wash your hands. And we will be back with more Live from the Bunker tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Copyright 2020 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.